certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. Crucial fibre evidence under scrutiny. Good to have you with us for day 70 of Claremont in Conversation. Natalie Bonjolo and Tim Clark with you. And also joining us, we welcome back Perth criminal defence lawyer Tom Percy QC. Tom, the last time we chatted to you on this podcast was during the civilian witness part of the trial. What's your opinion on, on how it's been tracking so far? Seems to be tracking pretty slowly. I mean, I'd go down there if I had a chance, but it's been a bit of a, a merciful release for me that they don't let anyone in anymore. So uh, I think the warning that was given to everyone at the very start by the prosecutor that uh, after a while it would become incredibly boring and it certainly lived up to its word. <laughs> well, Tim has been sitting there in court every day during this trial and sure, during that time, you know, we've seen extraordinary measures, as you've said, put into place and Justice Hall has said he is determined that this trial will continue. How crucial is it that they get the job done and that they get to see this through without interruption? Well, there have been interruptions and there may well be more interruptions, but I think uh, the beauty of having a a trial without a jury is that it just goes till it finishes, whereas uh, you know, jury trials can abort for all sorts of reasons. And I would have thought, had this been a jury trial, would would not, not have got into this month. But, uh, yeah, look, I think it's important for the community that it concludes. Uh, I was speaking to a, a judge the other day who said he thought it probably had another uh, five or six weeks to run. Um, and if that's the case, then that will be a reasonably expeditious conclusion to it. But I think... Everyone in the legal profession is hoping that it, uh, it ends sooner rather than later because it's just become a bit like Blue Hills, hasn't it? <laughs> well, it is very interesting, you know, because despite the fact that the subject matter is very dry, there is still such intense public interest in the trial. Are you surprised by that? Oh, no, look, uh, anything like this was always going to have a lot of public interest. Uh, that never surprised me from day one, and I was never surprised when I went down there for the first month or so to see the lines of people uh, waiting to get in and uh, you know, the difficulty that you had getting a seat down there, even as a member of the profession, was uh, quite remarkable. I've never seen the like of it. I mean, we all sat through rainy. We sat through cases like when premiers of this state went on, on trial, you know, Carmen Lawrence, Ray O'Connor, David Parker, people like that, enormously high-profile people, but it never drew the sort of crowds that this case has drawn. Yeah, that's right. And, and Tim, you've seen that. It's been extraordinary, this duration. I mean, we're into our fourth month now and and you have seen extraordinary scenes at the court. Yeah, yeah and we've mentioned it before. It's, it started in a blaze of glory. And uh, again, today, uh, I, I, I was the last man standing in, in court, <laughs> uh, apart from uh, obviously the woman standing on her feet, Carmel Barbagallo, doing most of the questioning. Um, so, yeah, the, the environment around the, the, the trial has changed, but uh, um, the bubble inside the trial, um, it still um, grinds on. And as, as Tom mentioned there, the, uh, the subject matter, um, particularly the last couple of weeks, has been uh, pretty dry, pretty detailed. Um, it, ca it, it can get quite wearing, um, listening to uh, fibre evidence and, and details of cloth and weave and colour and 
and viscous and polyester. Um, but uh, I, I bumped into Carmel at, at lunchtime, and she, she even she said that she's uh, she's admirable of anyone who's sticking with it um, because of the uh, dry nature of it. But she did point out to me it is it is critical evidence as well, and that's why it's taken uh, it's taking so long and going into so much detail. That's right. And today, of course, you heard from um, people who were involved in the manufacture and the sales of the fabric. Yeah, that's right. So we're um, we're digging into really drilling down into the the as you say that who made the fabric, who it was sold to, and then what it was made into. Um, and so a company called Bruck Textiles made the fabric that these um, Telstra pants were eventually made out of, and then that te- uh, that fabric then went on to Yakka, a very very well known um, Australian workwear manufacturer. Um, and they were given the contract to make this Telstra workwear for many, many years, and and um, and we and then we went also went back um, to the cross examination of the witness that we we had yesterday, and all of it surrounds um, exactly what type of shade, exactly what type of blend the material was, what color it was, and whether there could be any other company person um, source of that fiber um, or those fibers that were said to have been found on Jane, on Kira, on the Karakata victim and in Mr. Edwards' car. And did you get any um, information about, you know, how much of this fabric was made and and the companies that may have also been supplied it? Yeah, I mean, that that was the crux of the the questioning um, from uh, Michael Smith, who was the, the the sales and marketing manager of Bruck Textiles, um, he described um, this Telecom Navy or Telecom Blue fibre um, when it first came into circulation. He was asked um, who it was sold to and made for in particular, um, and his answers were really there were a couple of small um, consignments um, sold to a, a, a couple of smaller companies, but the vast majority of it, more, more than 200,000 linear metres of this material, um, this 6535 blend um, that, that had this very dark navy blue, this Telstra blue, um, went to um, to Yakka. Um, and the, 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 the combination of it all together, that fabric and the colour, um, was given the, the name or the nickname Llama, um, and then and then that was sold to Telstra for many many years and by the tens of thousands of meters um, because you can imagine how many um, uh, operatives in the field um, both male and female they had to dress in this fabric um, which was um, which was specially made for them and then as we've seen in previous evidence with the, the order forms um, every two or three years every every um, operative in the field would, was encouraged to order two or three more uniforms um, so they would look um, their very best when they were mending phone lines um, up and down the coast of Western Australia um, so that was that was how Mr Smith was was questioned um, and as we've said previously, Justice Hall really nailed it when he got to his question right at the end was how many metres went here and how many metres of, of it went to Telstra. And as I say, the vast, vast majority of it um, went to Yakka and then went to Telstra. i ask you a question, Tim, because you've been there yeah. and uh, we haven't. So what line is the defence taking in cross-examination? Because that's usually how you tell where they're going with this. 
how they how are they seeking to impugn it? We saw it with the DNA. They took a line, as it seemed to me, that uh, you know, there was all sorts of potential contamination and that uh, people uh, had uh, come up with different results in the lab. Mm. Things went missing and things along that nature. What sort of line are they, is the defence taking in cross-examination of these witnesses? They're really, Tom, they're really trying to get to a point where they can say, I think um, Telstra was not the only company that used this colour, this fabric um, at this time. Um, that's where they're trying to get. Um, the, the questions, the cross-examination of Mr. Smith this morning by um, uh, Mr. Edwards's co-counsel, Genevieve Cleary, she pointed out that uh, towards the end of the 90s, so after the murders, um, uh, this fabric basically got into a, a lot wider circulation than it had in the mid-90s when the prosecution say these fibres were left behind. And so I took from that them to be trying to show, well, it wasn't just Telstra um, that this, this these fibres um, were issued to um, around about the time, not specifically at the time of the murders, but around about the time. Um, and that was the late 90s, which, which would then say to me that, that they're going to contamination again. I think they're going to try and show that, well, um, we don't think those fibres were left behind at the murder scenes or at the times of the murders. We think they were left behind in the in intervening uh, 20 years um, and we saw that a little bit during the cross-examinations during the post-mortem um, uh, evidence when everyone was asked what were you wearing at the time um, and what, what was the security like in, in terms of contamination around the, um, the, the scenes and where, where had you been on, on those days um, prior to and, and during those post-mortem examinations. And I think that's where we're going to go to a lot to come as well in, in terms of police have been asked that, um, forensic scientists have been asked that when they've been examining the hair samples in, in, in 2004 and 2008 and 2012 and 2014. So that, that's my summation of where I, th I think they're trying to go is broaden out the scope of where this fabric could have been worn and then try and find possible different sources of it other than the killer. Do you think that there's any suggestion that they might be uh, going down the line of, well, police wear uh, uniforms of broadly this colour and that some of those fibres may well belong to police officers from their yeah. uniforms? Well... Um, Miss Barbara Gallo tried to head that off right at the past during her opening when she said, um, we say police uniforms could not have been the source of that. Um, but I think next week when we get to the chem centre, so all, all this, the last couple of weeks have just been um, setting up for the real um, key chem centre witnesses when they come in and they will actually put the fibres on the slides and show what they were made of and what they look like under a microscope. Um, so I, I th certainly the, the, the prosecution have 
thought of that possibility and are trying to um, head it off um, at the pass. And uh, I've got to say, the last couple of weeks' evidence, there hasn't been any um, real evidence that um, uh, that anything like this um, mixture of um, fibres um, could have come from a police officer, but that's not or police uniform. But that's n- not to say um, that um, that it won't be suggested. Certainly next week when we get to the the, the, the Cam Centre um, analysts. There's another suggestion that the dye that was used for the Telstra uniform was a specific type of dye, and it may possibly only have been used in Telstra uniforms. What can you tell us about the exclusivity aspect of the dye? Yeah, well, that's really where the, where the, the, they've spent the last two days drilling down into the exact number um, of the colour that was used, um, and then the um, the number of the um, the base material that was used, and the combination of those, the prosecution say was for a large amount of time in the 90s absolutely exclusive to Telstra. So that colour might have been used somewhere else, but not with the right fibre. And that fibre might have been used somewhere else, but not with the right colour. So it's that combination of the two that the prosecution um, have really tried to um, close all the other windows um, and all the other possibilities and and, and Today, in cross-examination again, um, uh, Liberty or Wagner Chavez is um, is this, the witness's name that we heard about yesterday. And she was again asked about that and about the testing that was done on some fabric that was given to her to try and prove that. Um, and uh, the prosecution have, have spent a, a lot of their time um, over the last two, two days trying to, um, to show um, Justice Stephen Hall, that that combination of fabric and colour was exclusive um, to Telstra. And Tim, well, if, they can make, if they can make that point good, you'd think that would be mm. a very strong uh, plank in their case. But the mm. question that arises to me, and, and perhaps you can answer this, is: Is there any questioning on the lines of how likely it might be that uh, materials would last in a car for over twenty years? I wouldn't like to think that if I sold my car now, uh, that in 20 years' time, the person who uh, had it would still be able to find traces of me in it. So I don't know yeah. whether there's been any cross-examination down those lines. Yeah. Well, n- not yet, but because we haven't... So we we haven't actually heard from the Chem Centre um, uh, scientist that... We've seen a picture of him, Peter Collins, um, actually doing that... Um, that, that detailed analysis over the 11 days that we spoke of and um, the, the pictures that the court released to us show the actual part of the car where they say that they found those uh, fibers and they are um, if, if one could imagine in your um, uh, driving seat in your car the rails that the car sits on to um, enable you to uh, move it forward and back um, the the prosecution say it's that right hand rail Underneath that, um, stuck in there somehow or somewhere among all the other debris, were these tiny microscopic fibres, and that's 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 where they had been able to endure for all that time. 
um, even though the car had been through several pairs of uh, pairs of driving gloves over the over the journey, and it had been owned ultimately for ten years by a, a, a gentleman up in up in the Perth Hills who was using it for his gardening business. So the, the prosecution say, well, they were there, they were found there, and that that's how because they were they were so. Um, ingrained, if I can put it that way, in the car's mechanics, that uh, that um, that, uh, that that that's how they uh, that's how they'd endured. But once again, we haven't really got to the witness that found those, um, um, and I'm sure um, that will be a, a strong tenet of the uh, of the defence questioning. Is, is that, or how likely is that that uh, that these these fibres can 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 stick around for 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 so many years? Yeah, if I was a defence counsel, I can tell you it'd be the first port of call for me. Mm. Well, you are a defence counsel, Tom, and that's <laughs> why we're talking to you. <laughs> Tom, you mentioned a moment ago about the DNA. How strong do you think the defence argument was in relation to that cross-examination of the DNA? Again, not cross contamination. But uh, I would I would have thought that. Uh, that there's always worries with contamination. They've exposed a lot of uh, problems with the DNA evidence. But at the end of the day, if the Kira Glennon uh, fingernail DNA holds up, then the defence have got some problems, I would have thought. Mm. Tim, um, just coming back to the to the fabrics, you mm. also heard today from this garment technician for workwear were they asked um, who they did supply the various uniforms to and was the uniform only for these navy pants or was this fabric used for other items of clothing? Yeah, so this was a, a, a lady that, that has worked for Yakka uh, or um, the various um, um, different um, iterations of Yakka over the over the years um, and she was involved in, in, in designing um and, and patterning um, um, workwear um, for many, many companies. Um, and she was taken to um, that those styles, um, the, 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 the types of pants, um, the types of shorts, um, uh, and she, she seemed to have an immaculate memory of, 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 uh, of, of what, or they were asked to produce for Telstra all those years ago, um, and they and they were. There were two different styles of pants. There was some shorts, which we've seen photographs of, and um, and this fabric um, was um, specifically um, designed because it would for them because it was very dark. It was a particularly dark um, shade, um, and she said that that was used um, uh, for the the, the female um, um, half of the workforce. Um, for Telstra at that time as well. So, um, well, I mean, we've said it numerous times. The the the, the infinitesimal detail that we we are we are delving into in this trial is um, is extraordinary in itself. It, it can be quite um, taxing to listen to at times, um, but you, you you only have to admire the the um, the the, uh, the amount of stones that have been upturned um, that by uh, by both sides um, in trying to get to the very uh, the very heart of the matter. Tom, have you seen this much attention to detail when we're talking about things like a tiny fibre? Uh, it's it's unusual. I've seen cases that have, from time to time, gone into this sort of detail because, as a defence counsel, you have to, but not to this length in relation to so many articles and and in relation to so many issues. Because 
I think what you've got to realise that this is really three trials uh, going on at the one time. And usually, you know, if you're doing a homicide case, uh, you deal with one death at a time. Um, multiple homicide cases are rare. So especially when the bodies are discovered at different times, different locations, and one's not been discovered at all, uh, you're really trying to run three trials at the same time. So the degree of uh, difficulty improving all of these things in conjunction with what the prosecution says is a similar facts case or a propensity evidence case involving another case which uh, uh, has uh, DNA issues as well. That's the Karakata offence. And then we've also got the Huntingdale uh, offence as well. So effectively there's five trials going in five sets of evidence cross-pollinating into one trial. So the short answer to your case is, no, I've never seen it before, but then I've only been a lawyer for 45 years. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's interesting you just mentioned um, one of the bodies, of course, hasn't been found, and we keep getting uh, questions from listeners along the same lines, and that is, if Bradley Edwards were to be convicted and could offer the location of Sarah Spears, is that something that would go to a lesser sentence? Well, it would, but uh, not. we're really only chipping around the edges because uh, he's going to get, on any one of them, he'd get, he'd get life with a really long uh, non-parole period. He's going to get a very long cumulative sentence in relation to the Karakata rape and another one in relation to Huntingdale, to which he's pleaded guilty. So uh, I would think uh, there's certainly not much uh, bargaining power in it for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but who knows? I mean, it's possible that he'd get something off. But when we're talking about life with a 50-year minimum as distinct from a 49-year year minimum, yeah. you know, who knows? Yeah. And we've seen in this that the prosecution and defence recently have had to make so many allowances because of the virus. Do you think there's any risk down the track that this could increase the chances of any kind of appeals? Uh, look, I, I think uh, if, if the defence are happy to go on, uh, given the situation, uh, and the prosecution are happy to proceed, then that's, an, that's something that's been reached by mutual agreement and wouldn't be the subject to any complaint in a court of appeal. It's really only where there's a problem which confronts an accused, it's not remediable, and he's forced in a position to have to go on, that you might have some complaint later on if you got convicted. But... Of course, he hasn't been convicted yet, so we'd have to wait and see if that arose. But from what I've seen, everyone's been happy with the progress of the matter and there have been no, been no procedural issues which could give rise to complaint, I would have thought. Yeah. And you've written about this, but and we've discussed it in this podcast, you know, um, a, a catastrophe would be an outbreak in the prison, which wouldn't be just catastrophic for the prison system, but also for this trial. Well, it's not quite as catastrophic for this trial as any other trial because you could adjourn this trial part heard. Mm, yeah. So let's say it, it just became unworkable to go any further as of, uh, say, next week and some people uh, came down with it, maybe the accused or whatever. You could adjourn it for six months uh, and then start again, whereas with a jury trial, you have to abandon it and then get another jury in six months' time and start from scratch. So if we start this again let's say a month down the track, if someone became infected, counsel or, goodness forbid, the judge or the accused or anything like that, uh, and uh, 
when you're resurrected, it doesn't start from scratch. Everything just starts from where it was. So it's nowhere near the kind of catastrophe that it would be if it was a jury trial. Yeah. And, Tim, we have a question for you. Um, there obviously has been talk that the trial could finish earlier than expected, and given this current situation, Megan wants to know if sentencing would be brought closer to in the next couple of weeks or in the next month or so, would mm. the court likely do the sentencing online? Um, three really good questions in one there. Um, the original estimate for the trial was nine months. Um, that was that was significantly paired back by those two guilty pleas that Tom's mentioned. And as he's also mentioned, it's actually progressing pretty well given, given the circumstances, all the circumstances surrounding it. We heard today from in the um, death rows of today's evidence that uh, Miss Barbara Gallo has about another three, three and a half weeks of evidence to go for um, the prosecution case. Um, most of that will be taken up with more fibre evidence, um, but we will also get to see Mr Edwards's record of interview. Then there's going to be some legal arguments surrounding the motive, the emotional upset that we talked about in the very early stages. And Justice Hall will have to rule on that and whether he's going to allow that evidence in to his um, uh, ponderings before the defence um, case starts because the defence need to know whether they need to address that or not in their case. So, look... Weighing all that up, three weeks plus maybe another few days of uh, legal argument, and then whatever the defence um, chooses to do, which is um, that, that's entirely their prerogative. Um, and we know what the main question, or one of the main questions, the judge is going to ask is: Is Mr. Evidence, uh, Mr. Edwards, likely to give evidence in person? If he is, that will extend the trial length quite significantly i would have thought so we're looking to finish um, earlier than was expected but i think we've still got months rather than weeks to go in terms of the sentencing i'm absolutely certain that justice hall will consider um doing a some sort of streaming or live broadcast of his sentencing mm -hmm. remarks when it comes to that the verdict i'm not I'm not sure um, because that can bring its own um, issues. But if, if well, we are going to a sentencing because, as Tom says, the rape and, and Huntingdale will have to be sentenced. Obviously, there's, there's verdicts to come first. Um, but I, I'm pretty sure that Justice Hall will seriously consider that if we are still in the same environment um, that we are at the moment in terms of crowds and social distancing. And our state government here is, is, is warning us that uh, we could have these restrictions on our, on our liberties for six months. So, um, I mean, that takes us close to Christmas and, that, and that's roundabout when you'd think we might get a verdict. So I would say there's a distinct possibility that, um, that the, the verdicts uh, and certainly the sentencing in, the, in this case might be, uh, might be streamed to the world. Yeah. Tom, if you were a gambling man, um, would you, <laughs> would you uh, think the accused would take the stand? Uh, I, would, I would think no. I would think um, you really can't add much to a, a case where you uh, just deny anything or any knowledge of it. Sometimes an accused person has to give evidence. Let's say there's a consent sexual assault. You say it was consensual. They say it wasn't. You have to give evidence. Let's say there's a 
self-defence, grievous bodily harm or murder. You have to put that evidence there. Um, but you, you know who done it. There's just really nothing that you can add. I mean, you, your best uh, defence is attacking the Crown case. Now, obviously, uh, Jovic knows this case uh, back to front and he knows what he's going to do. He keeps his cards pretty close to his chest. He doesn't talk to me about it. Uh, <laughs> you know, if I if I had to have a bet on it, I'd, I'd be I'd be I'd be betting that he wouldn't be taking the stand. In terms of how long the case is going to go, I think I agree with Tim. It's probably we're looking at months rather than weeks. I did run into a judge the other day in the mall, and I said, "How do you think they're tracking with Edwards?" He says, "Oh, probably only five or six weeks to go." And I thought, "Oh, <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought so," um, because they've got to give. Uh, final submissions, and they'd probably do that in writing. So um, it's not like standing up and make an oratorial address to the to the jury. It's the judge is there. You don't have to impress him with your oratory or your rhetoric. Um, but you'd probably want to, some weeks to prepare uh, written submissions, and then um, I think the judge will go away. He'll have to write a, a decision. You'd think that someone as and with great respect, I say this about him, he's a very organised judge. Uh, he would probably be writing uh, the factual aspects of this as we go along to just relieve himself of the obligation to having to do it all at the end. And I would think he would probably reserve, you know, it would be something like two, three months. Mm. So Tim's getting close to it, and it would be, I would think, getting on towards uh, September, October, something like that, before we could expect a decision. Um, <clears throat> probably, depending what uh, he's convicted of, if anything, other than the ones to which he's pleaded guilty, I would think, again, Tim is right, that there's such public interest in this and such difficulty getting all interested parties into the court at the time that, uh, like the sentencing for George Pell, yeah. uh, that was heard uh, last... Uh, May, I think it was, um, that Justice Hall would seriously consider representations from the media to broadcast the matter live. Yeah, definitely. And one thing we've learned from this trial, and, and especially in the times in which we are now, and that is to expect the unexpected at times. Uh, Tim, do you know what we can expect from tomorrow? Well, once again, I have to disappoint you and say nothing because we've <laughs> finished our evidence for this week and we've finished all the evidence pre-Easter. So we won't be back in court now until next Tuesday when, um, as I said, one, one of the main Chem Centre witnesses will give um, will, will, will take the stand. Um, uh, and that will be, um, his name is Rhys Powell and he was one of the chem center analysts that really um really hit the microscope hard and was comparing these fibers found on the on on, on both jane and kira um, and and various other sources um to what the prosecution say were the actual sources the car and the pants and so we're going to hear i've been uh, reliably informed in again in intimate detail fiber by fiber by fiber <laughs> where they were found um what happened to them after they were found where they sat for all those years and then eventually when um the source um was 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 gleaned after mr edwards's arrest the analysis of that so um 
Mr. Powell is probably going to be the only witness for next week. So that that will be four days of, of him. And there might be another game centre witness after that. And then the prosecution's fibre expert, Dr. Ray Palmer, um, who is UK-based, will also um, be giving lengthy evidence. And that may well precipitate some late night sittings again because of the time difference to the uk and obviously the fact that he can't travel here so um so yeah um a fair bit to go yet but we're, we, we are now starting to to get to the real um the real heart of the fiber portion of the case terrific well thank you so much tom for your time today and thank you tim and thanks for your company if you'd like to get in touch email us at claremontpodcast at wanews.com.au and wherever you may be have a safe easter please stay at home we'll be back with you tuesday for week 18 of claremont in conversation this podcast was produced by kate ryan and alicia preedy and recorded in the studios of seven west media Audio files were provided from the archives of The Seven Network and The West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. For a fresh take on the news that matters, tune in to WA's newest morning show, The West Live, with Jenna Clark at thewest.com.au. The West Live not only delivers on what the day's big news stories mean for WA with hard-hitting interviews and analysis, but it will also make you smile with light-hearted chats and local gossip. The West Live, like talkback radio, but without the interruptions. Listen live weekdays from 8.45am on thewest.com.au or catch up with the podcast.